can take your seats. And at this point, our children's ministry is, our children's church is dismissed. And I am going to read a couple of texts this morning for you. And I want you just to listen. And you'll hear a common thread. The first text is taken from the prophet Daniel in chapter 12 in verse 2. Listen what the Lord spoke through the prophet Daniel almost, well, 2,500 years ago. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Second text is taken from Revelation, the book of Revelation, chapter 14, beginning in verse 9, where it says, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its mark and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, whoever receives the mark of its name. And then the final text is found in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, um, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne of him who was seated on it, and from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in it in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Ironically enough, both evolutionary scientists, and not every scientist believes in the theory of evolution, But evolutionary scientists and Christians agree on one thing, and that is at some future point, the world will come to an end. Uh, The first, on the basis of pure physics, knows that at some point, the sun will have consumed all of its combustible fuels, and it will die, and along with it, our solar system. Christians also believe and know that the world will come to an end, but a different end. That is... What we believe and what has been declared through the prophets and apostles and Jesus himself is that the world will end as we know it with a final encounter with God and judgment. Um, So both are agreed on that point. It will be a day of, of light and darkness, a day of rejoicing and a day of mourning. It will be a day of dancing and also a day of destruction. This morning, we're going to look at the dark part of the judgment, which is God's condemnation of those who do not believe, 
do not trust in the grace and the mercy and the love of God poured out through Jesus Christ. But I want to do it in a way that may strike you as odd. I would like to look at this dark work of judgment called condemnation in light of the greater massiveness and greatness of God's love. That may sound like a contradiction, but hopefully by the time we get to the end, you'll, you'll see it. That is what I want you to see by the time we get done, is the whole idea of condemnation is dwarfed next to the greatness of God's love. So that there is a huge bright light that's going to hopefully shine in this message as we talk about something very dark. But before we do, I want us to consider the contents of final condemnation. That is, what does it mean to be condemned? We're going to do that pretty quickly, and then we're going to get to the love part. The judgment of unbelievers. Um, The text that I read, both from Daniel and also from Revelation 14 and also Revelation 20, tells us at least three truths about final condemnation. One is it tells us about the intensity of it or how severe it's going to be. That Revelation 14 is perhaps the most graphic of all the texts in the Bible that talk about the intensity of suffering that will take place as a result of final condemnation. I'm going to read part of it again. Verse 10 says, uh, let me back up to verse 9. If anyone worships the beast in its image, and by, by the way, however you take these images as literal or as symbolic. I mean, the book is filled with symbolism. It points to the same reality, namely judgment. Judgment on those in particular who have turned from the the living and true God and offered their allegiance and loyalty to something else. In this case, the beast, worldly power, fallen worldly powers. But it says here in verse 9, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Full strength undiluted. It's a kind of judgment and condemnation that the world has not yet seen. Full strength. I take that back. It has seen it one time, which we'll come to in a couple of moments. So the intensity is its full strength. Second thing you can learn from this text is also the duration of that judgment or the condemnation. It seems really clear to me and to many others that the duration of that condemnation, which is intense and full strength, is eternal. Notice verse 11 where it says, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Let me read that again. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. There's no relieving of torment. There's no respite. There's no rest. There's no letting up. So it's full strength, that's intensity. I don't know why this is doing this, but you're just going to have to bear with it. It's Satan's way of trying to get in the way of what he wants to say. And it's eternal in duration. And then the final thing that I want to point out, and there's certainly a lot more to be said, but comes to light, especially in Revelation chapter 20, is the basis of that judgment, namely how we live our lives. How 
we live our lives will be the basis of judgment. Again, here's that text of Revelation 20. And you see in several points, he repeats himself. That basically, there's going to be a day in court, God's court, in which all the books are going to be opened. Now, whether, again, those are symbolic or to be taken literal, God has everything perfectly memorized in his head. He doesn't have to memorize, by the way. He simply knows. Verse 12, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written, the records, in the books, according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead and that were in it. In other words, everybody's going to come to life. People that were lost at sea and people who were burned to death. Everyone's going to come back to life. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So there is going to be a thorough examination of everyone's lives. Not just the acts that we do or the deeds that we do, but also the thoughts that we have, the motivations that we have, the methods that we use. Everything is brought out before the Lord of Heaven. So, for the Christian, that is actually a comfort in the sense that we know that someday we will have our day in court, so to speak. Um, That is, we can trust God with justice so we don't have to take vengeance for things committed against us. But everyone will be judged on the basis of what they have done and condemned because of it. And no amount of good deeds will make up for the bad ones. Um, God is not going to take a scale out and say you had five good deeds and you had four bad deeds, and so you're in. The purpose and the result of this judgment will be condemnation. So it is intense, it is eternal, and it is on the basis of how you lived. Now that is a rather forensic description of condemnation a rather forensic and cold um, description of of hell. But for those of us who really believe that, in that reality, who have lost loved ones, who didn't believe, that's a very painful truth. I'll never forget a message that I received. It's one of those times when you remember exactly where you were, exactly what you were doing. It was 1988, and I was in Chicago at the Marriott Hotel, sitting on the bed reading my book. And a message, I had truly come to faith at that point, and I believed in what the Bible said, and I received the message that my grandfather Deckard had passed away. And I don't know how to ad- adequately describe the feeling I felt, but I remember weeping and feeling a deep sadness in my heart because my grandfather did not believe. And I knew at that moment, when I received the message, that for him, he will face this day alone, someone that I loved. Now, I know that we can't be absolute about anyone's final destiny. Who knows? He could have, at the last moment, like the thief on the cross, turned to the Lord. So there is a fraction of a percentage that he may be there. I don't know for sure. But there's no evidence for that. So that's, that's a difficult reality for us as Christians who face this truth in the Bible that there is a, a hell and a day of condemnation that is coming. Which is why I really want to take what we have just laid out right now and now I want to look at it in view of God's love. Um, because if all we had 
in our Bibles, we're Daniel chapter 12, and Revelation 14 and Revelation 20, it would seem as if God is disproportionately angry. But I want to paint a completely different picture. Um, that next to God's love, even for those who will never choose him and never believe, um, that condemnation is properly, I think, seen and understood in light of the magnificence of his love. Here, I'm going to give you three aspects of God's love and how we should see condemnation from those vantage points. One is that we must view condemnation, we must view condemnation in view of God's patient love. Let me say that again. That we must view condemnation in view, or must see condemnation in view of God's loving patience. The Bible declares in one of the most succinct and concise self-revelations in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, that God is amazingly slow to anger. Um, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That God is not hot-tempered. He doesn't wait for a few things and then strike someone down, although he's justified in doing it because he is the infinitely holy, sovereign, loving king. But that's not his character. He's patient. He delays condemnation. And that is a facet of his love. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, doesn't he? He says love is patient. And God is the most patient of all. And if you look at the major judgments within Scripture, you'll see that God always delays his condemnation. Take the flood, Genesis chapter 6. The first universal outpouring of God's wrath on planet Earth in which he he drowns an entire civilization except for eight souls that are aboard Noah's ark. You just read that chapter, you might think, how can God do that? But if you back up a chapter, in chapter 5, you'll see that 11 generations went by as mankind declined from the very second generation, Cain's kids, and that all, man, all mankind descended into this violent, corrupt world. Eleven generations passes before he floods the earth, and if I did my math right, that is about 16 centuries, or 1,656 years to be exact, because all the years are chronicled there. That's assuming there are no gaps in the genealogy of chapter 5. Over a millennium and a half goes by before God finally does what he does. Sixteen centuries of enduring man's violence and corruption, and then his wrath is poured out. That's patience. Or you take God's judgment on his own people, Israel, in the year 586 B.C., in which he, by his design and his justice, brings the Babylonian armies, and this is is found in secular histories, and, and he decimates the city of Jerusalem, the temple of Jerusalem, and massacres the people because it's his outpouring of his wrath. And yet, what you see is that takes place after 15 generations of kings, most of whom are evil. 
over, well, 500 years of God pleading through the prophets, turn, 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 five centuries. And then judgment comes. God is amazingly patient. Or even by the time we get to the events in chapter 20 where there's a great white throne, you think about how many thousands of years God has patiently withheld that final condemnation. Thousands of years. Even the book of Revelation itself, I think, should be read in terms of God's patient love. As God slowly unfolds his judgments on the earth, I believe it has a merciful purpose. The people would turn, but they don't. Even in the chapter 14 that we read, where I said it's one of the most graphic descriptions of what takes place, that it's intense and it's eternal and it's on the basis of works, you'll notice in the, in the, in the, in the text right before it, God, in an act of mercy, pleads for the people to turn through an angel. Where an angel flies and says, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth and sea and springs of water. So even the way the revelation is laid out, you see God, it's as if God is reluctant to condemn. And I believe that that is a true statement. Because God is patient, and God does not delight in the destruction even of wicked people. That's Ezekiel chapter 18, I believe, verse 24. So he doesn't delight in it. That that's, that's, that's the heart of God, even towards people who will never believe in him. Who never even acknowledge him, or give thanks to him, or recognize that their life is his. The heart of Jesus that, that looks out over Jerusalem and says in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that killed the prophets and stoned those that God sent to you. How often I wanted to gather your children as a hen would gather its chicks. You sense in the heart of Christ himself, who is the self-revelation of God's heart, that there's a reluctance to judge, and I believe there is. And just a little side note here. For those of you who love Reformed theology, and I do, your theological box has to be wide enough to encounter God's heart and love for unbelievers. Otherwise, you leave out a significant portion of Scripture to make your theology narrow. I believe that God can, at one time, this may sound like a contradiction, rejoice in the fact that justice is satisfied on that day, at the same time not desire the death of the wicked. Both those things are true, because they're clearly taught in Scripture. But we have to look and see that when this judgment happens, God has been amazingly patient. The redeemed will sing to the Lord and say, I can't believe how long you endured corruption because of the patience of God's love. Or here's, here's another facet of God's love, that I believe we must view condemnation in view of God's lavish generosity. That we view this final event, as dark as it is, in view of God's lavish generosity. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus himself teaches us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, he teaches us that God sends or makes the sun to shine on both the righteous and the wicked. 
Sunshine is a gift that he makes the rain come down on the righteous and the wicked. And that's in a context that's talking about loving your enemies. In other words, Jesus calls his people to love his enemies, our enemies, because God is someone who loves his enemies and gives them things all the time. He gives sunshine, he gives rain, he gives laughter, he gives people children, he gives us air to breathe. And he's done that for generations, thousands of years, even to people who never even acknowledge him or argue that he doesn't exist. He continues to give and give and give and give. And take just a moment, and this is thousands of years of God's generosity to people who will never acknowledge him. You stop for a moment and just realize that every morning mankind wakes up, there are over 10,000 species of birds singing his praise. Or that every time we wake up, we are surrounded by a world that is clothed with almost 400,000 different species of plant life and trees, different colors and smells and designs, and over 1.2 million species of animals, all of which just displays the bounty and the generosity of God, even to people who will never trust Him. So you have to understand that When this day comes, it will have been after thousands of years of God giving himself. That every day we live, we live upon his riches, on his gifts. Right now we're breathing because he is gracious. Not just to believers, to unbelievers as well. He causes the rain to fall on both the righteous and the unrighteous. That's the amazing love that God has even for people who will never believe. So that when this day comes... The redeemed will sing to the Lord and recognize how amazingly gracious you were to undeserving people. And then the third one, which is the biggest of all, is that we must view condemnation or we must see condemnation from the vantage point or from the viewpoint of the cross itself, the cross of Jesus. Because the very same cup that's described in Revelation chapter 24 that's mixed full strength, Jesus himself came to take and to drink and to swallow it all for those who would trust in him. I mean, that's when he went into the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed three times. And he said, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And the next day, or that day, depending on how late or early it was, he drank it. Not just the cup of suffering, but the cup of God's wrath. Stirred, unmixed, undiluted. He drank down. In other words, God himself took on himself what we deserve. And he drank all of it. That's that's the cross. So God himself laid down his life for those who would trust him. To take it. To take this day away. So you put those things together. The fact that God has been patient in his love. That God has been gracious in his love. And that God himself came and absorbed that in his love. For those who would believe. No one at the end of the time when Revelation 20 takes place. No one's going to be able to point their finger and say you were mean. You can't. You will be speechless. Those who stand there before him 
without having trusted in God's grace and mercy and goodness to do for them what we couldn't do for ourselves. Be speechless. It's like, I can't believe that God loved people that much for that long. It's amazing you waited so long, oh Lord. So, if you look at condemnation, which is dark, from the vantage point of God's amazing, patient, powerful, generous, self-sacrificing love, then it doesn't tower high. It, it stands in the shadow of God's love. And I don't know what that truth does for you, but I know what it does for me in that perspective. One, it just makes me want to worship the Lord because it exalts his love even for the person who never will acknowledge him. Makes me want to say with my heart, uh, I give thanks to you, O Lord, for your good and your steadfast love endures forever. It should make us want to worship the love of God. I think another thing that it does for me is it gives me a context in which to think about those who who someday will experience Revelation chapter 20 and Revelation 14. That at the end of the day, when that happens, as sad and as difficult as it is, it's on them. It really is on them because God has displayed his love in his patience and in his generosity. So let me just stop here and just say a word to anyone here who may not, and you know you don't trust him. You haven't trusted that he came, took the place for you so that you could avoid this day. That I hope that you'll see that this morning you're not here by accident or by coincidence. But God, in a gift of love, brought you here, however he got you here, because he wants you to hear something. He wants you to hear that he's loved you. Every breath you take into your lungs is a gift from him. And he's asking you, will you trust what I have done for you that you can't do for yourself? And I hope that you'll respond to that and humble your heart. I mean, you can continue in your, your uh, the deception of there is no God, but everything outside this building screams complex design and goodness of God. He'll show it to you over and over again. I just pray that you'll trust him. That's, that's what the Bible calls it to do. Trust him. And then last, just how it hits, should hit us. Is it should create a sense of burden for us with two parts. If we really believe that this day is coming, the day of condemnation, then we should feel it. I have unbelieving family members who are in my immediate family who, apart from me sharing about the magnificence of God's love, will face this day alone and be condemned. Now, I know ultimately that's in the hands of the Lord, but there should be an inward pressure of, I need to tell them what's coming. There is a last day out there that's coming, and also that God does love them, is loving them, and he has sacrificed his life for those who would trust him. There should be an evangelistic fervor that comes out of recognizing that that day is coming, but also knowing the amazing grace of God's love. So I I pray that God will take this truth of condemnation, which is true, in light of God's greater love, 
and just reinforce into our hearts, one, his great love, but also the need for us to share and let that love out and tell people God does indeed love you. Trust him. Trust him. Will you, in response to this, just you pray by yourself. Just say, Lord, will you, will you give me a sense of urgency, motivated by both your love but also the coming of the day? Will you give me an urgency about my faith? And if you're here and you're one of those people saying, you know what, I do want to trust God, then you too can just ask and offer your life, surrender to his love, and begin a, a life of following him. So pray for a couple of moments in response, however God may be leading you, and then I'll close this in prayer and we'll sing of his love. dimly through a mirror. I pray that you would give us greater vision, a wider vision of who you are and the amazing towering love that you have shown to the people on this planet and to us through Jesus Christ, that it would grip our hearts and it would motivate us to love people, but also to share your love with them and what you have done and who you are. Father, I pray for those souls who are still holding on to their own pride and arrogance, who refuse to look and see that you're here all around us. Evidence is everywhere. I pray that you would humble their hearts and give them the joy of knowing you, trusting you, and knowing that they have an eternal hope. I pray for that as well. Lord, give us an urgency and a burden for those around us who are still wandering in darkness, that you through us would turn on the lights and allow them to see your love and your hope before that day comes. We thank you for your love. We revel in your love. Lord, may we give thanks for you are good. Your steadfast love endures forever. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can never tell it goes beyond the high